Hi, it's the third and final part today of the BBC series Our Language in Your Hands. Linguist Mark Turin heads to New York City, where languages from all over the world rub up against each other and, and where some immigrants pick up the most incredible diversity, geographical diversity, of other languages. These languages, many of them eventually die, at least in the United States, but not without first giving each other and giving English some gifts, some linguistic gifts. And interestingly, those languages that wash up here on the East Coast of the United States, in some cases, they take longer to die in New York City than they do in the places where they were originally spoken. Here's Mark Turin's report. New York is America's gateway for immigrants. The huddled masses referred to in the words on the base of the Statue of Liberty, who streamed in through Ellis Island in the 19th century and continue to arrive at New York airports to this day. And this ethnic and cultural diversity means that New York is also the most linguistically diverse city on the planet. On this densely packed urban island, some experts believe that over 800 different languages are spoken every day. More than one-tenth of all of the world's languages compressed into 450 square miles. Today, I'm on a physical journey through the language landscape of New York, aboard the number seven subway line as it rattles towards Times Square in the heart of Manhattan, passing through communities speaking Mandarin, Korean, Spanish, Hindi, and countless other national languages. I'm starting out in Queens, the most diverse borough of New York, to meet Hong Yi Lee Krakauer, executive director of the Queens Council on the Arts, and herself an embodiment of the diversity that I've come to explore. My name is Hung Lee Krakauer. I am the number one daughter of my mother, who's the number one daughter of an aristocratic Chinese family that had to flee China in the 30s. Anyway, I married a nice Jewish guy. So I am known in certain circles as Mrs. Krakauer. And um, when I do local shopping and I leave orders at the butcher or whatever, when I go to pick it up, most of the time people just look behind me for like a little old lady with piano legs and, you know, shopping bags. And um, to the credit of this borough, there was no surprise. You can be any name and look like anything. People do not bat an eyelash. But what was your linguistic landscape as a child? My parents were not English-speaking. My mother was Mandarin-speaking, and my father Cantonese, very lazy, so my mother had to learn Cantonese. So she learned a pidgin Cantonese. So when I speak Chinese, I speak that pidgin Cantonese Mandarin. And so now when young Chinese immigrant artists hear me speak, they say, you know, you sound like those movies from the 40s. But my babysitters were Jewish. They were little old Jewish ladies. They played canasta. They listened to, you know, Yiddish 
radio, so I grew up speaking Yiddish. So when I entered kindergarten, I was hi, but that's not. I was speaking Yiddish, thinking I was speaking English. I was corrected quickly. Can I ask you a little bit about the number seven train? What is it? Where does it take you from and to? The number seven train is a seven-mile train ride between Main Street, Flushing, which is its beginning in Queens, and it ends in Times Square. Many of the immigrant Asian immigrants clustered around there because they could get to the train and take the train and go to work. And Times Square, the center of the universe. So this was this train ride for immigrants to go to work, climb the economic ladder, do well. There's 17 stops, and over time, as you move flushing into Times Square, you hit Corona, which is Dominican, Peruvian, Colombian. Then you move into Woodside, Jackson Heights, which is the Indian, Bengali, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Colombian, you know, Korean. And then as you move, each station becomes a very, very different world. So we decided that it really is an international express, and it was something that my organization nominated in 1991, I think, to the White House as a living heritage trail. It's a, a wonderful connective tissue. It's a social, cultural, linguistic ride. I think you just have to buy a metro card and ride it. My guide is Jack Eichenbaum, borough historian of Queens. Our journey begins in Flushing. Let me give you a background of the number seven line and how that became the most important immigrant center of New York City. It comes about because of the unusual convergence of two things that happened in 1965. One, it was the second year of the Second World's Fair here in New York City, and that was held at the Willits Point stop where the fairgrounds, and that was Flushing Meadow Park, and that was our Second World's Fair. So who did we get? We got the South Koreans, and we got the Taiwanese. And the fair was a two-year event, 64 and 65. So the people that were manning the pavilions in both South Korea and Taiwan, which were beginning their rise to big industrial countries, really wanted to show off their stuff. And they had large delegations to run their pavilions. And since it was a two-year fair, they slept over in Flushing. So a community was already established when, in 1965, another event happened, which is our immigration law reform. Funny here in Main Street in Flushing, I feel overwhelmed by all these different languages that we're hearing as we just walk past them, but also the smells coming out of the restaurants and the little shops selling buns, kebabs. It's a sensory experience walking down the street in a New York suburb. This is 90% Korean. You can do almost anything that you need to do in Korean. You can get a massage, you can go to the bakery, you can go to a restaurant, you can buy furs, you can buy dresses, you can go to a travel agent, blah, 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 blah. Jack, tell us about where we're going now. What does Jackson Heights stand for? It's a neighborhood whose history grows up with the number seven train. And there, it's become a huge commercial district for South Asians and South Americans. Sitting here on the number seven train, we have a visualization of the linguistic diversity of the area. Right where we're sitting, there's a multilingual sign from the transit authority. It says in English, drop something, leave it, don't go down to the tracks. But it also says that in Spanish, Chinese, Korean, 
Russian, Spanish, and English. Now this is Hispanic already. This stuff and the next stuff, you'll find people from Ecuador, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. So I'm assuming you can see what the most important language is here. The signage is different immediately as we get somewhere. Second floor. Yeah. Here's a income tax and the notario, immigration and divorce lawyer. Employment agency. Yeah. And who are the communities who are served by this in Spanish? Oh, Where are they from? South America. For the most part around here, Colombia and Peru. This is the biggest Latino travel agent that they got half of the block here. And at many of the stops along the number seven train, you'll find a Delgado office. This is the next stop. This is 74th Street. And everything goes from 90% Latino to 90% South Asian. This has become Little India. And this street has become the wedding street. And you'll see mostly jewelry for dowries and fancy saris that are for parties that you, know, you don't wear in the street. Those, that's dowry jewelry that they usually keep in a safe deposit box. Let's go into this Jackson Heights food court. I've never seen such a long menu, and I mean long. Hello, sir. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Very well. Just looking at your amazing menu, it starts with appetizers and chaat, biryani, then goes to bartha, main courses, fish, tandoori, sandwiches, then you have something called Tibetan, Nepali. Let's move on. Let's have a look. Is it all fresh? Pretty much all fresh. We would like to cater all sort of people down here. Asians, and Nepalis, Americans, we have pizza, we have sandwiches, and then also Asian food. Was it your idea? It's a great idea. But here's a slightly political question, which is, when the Nepalis come, do they only eat Nepali food, or do the Nepalis sometimes eat the fish, and the Americans eat the The amazing thing is, when the Indian comes in, they pretty much ask for the Nepali food. And when Nepali comes in here, they ask for the Indian food. So... Through food, people are discovering each other's cultures, maybe their languages as well. The taste of another world. That, that is true. Jack's tour has taken us to Jackson Heights, where I have an old friend to look up, a recently married young mother from Nepal, Denden Gurung. I've known her for 20 years, but it's only recently that she's moved from her village in Nepal to New York City. It's her son's first birthday. He was born in America and is a U.S. citizen. So I've stopped by with a present to meet her husband, Wangdi, and for a cup of Tibetan tea. So I'm sitting here with Denden and her husband and her son. And this is an extraordinarily linguistically diverse room. We're sitting here speaking English now, but actually I speak with Denden and her husband. I speak Nepali, the national language of Nepal. But inside the family, they speak their own language, which is related to Tibetan, but it's not classical Tibetan. It's a specific village language. How many languages 
Does your son Babale? understand? Kati shikauni? Kadi kadi shiksa, kadi bushari. Aile da ule awa amro basa bani shiksa. An juta le awa bani juta le raamsa. Amoyle amro gawon tira bacha arul popo bansa hai yele juta le. Ani popo le raawa bani bani bus so Janan says that well, she speaks their own language. He probably hears Ani, Tibetan as well. Oh, thank you, Boltsavle. Namaste. He knows some Nepali. He'll of course learn English. Mm-hmm. So he's not even two years old, and he's Amro trilingual. There's a good chance that he'll be quadrilingual, and he'll probably go to school with kids who are Spanish-speaking and maybe Bengali-speaking and Hindi-speaking. Mm-hmm. How about you? How many languages do you speak? Hindi, Nepali, Tibet, and their own language, yes. and. Um, it's kind of a little bit Chinese, little bit Spanish. Now, how did you learn Chinese and, and Spanish? Uh, right, here, right here, American, in American. In, in work or on the subway? No, or in, in the work. I work at a Chinese restaurant, right, Busway. They have a lot of Chinese. So I talk to them and, you know, just a little bit, little bit. And Spanish? How come Spanish? Spanish, I just work now, right? So then the customer also is Spanish. Some customer, a lot of customer is Spanish. They teach me some, then I speak like little bit, little bit. Your boy, Sonam, will speak perfect English. Like my son and daughter, they'll speak English together. But maybe he'll speak Yulke in Nepali with an English or American accent. Do you think he will live in Nepal later or do you think he'll live in America? I think he living America. Yeah. When he grow the big, so he, of course, he don't want to go back. He he have to hear up good opportunity. You know? mm. He have to do something and he get to work good job. And he don't go back maybe. So how many different languages do they speak in this building? Next door, who's next door? Next door, India and Korea, Spanish. What is the common language in this building? Is it English or is it Spanish or Hindi? English, yeah. English. This was recorded here in New York at a picnic held by the Bishnu Priya Manipuri community. It's around 20 people and they're interviewing each other, talking about uh, their experiences back home. I picnic Linguist Dr. Daniel Kaufman has set himself the challenge of recording as many of New York's endangered speech forms as he can. Daniel, along with other linguists, established the Endangered Language Alliance as an urban initiative for research and conservation of endangered languages. It is the city with the highest linguistic density, and mostly because New York really draws large numbers of immigrants in almost equal parts from all over the globe, and that's really unique to New York. Personally, I was curious about the Mexican community in New York. There were so many indigenous uh, Mexicans working here, and nobody really um, communicates with them, actually, outside of their community, uh, strangely. And so at one point, I think it was uh, some Christmas party at the restaurant where my wife was uh, waitressing, after a few beers, I just said, all right, let me ask one of these guys if they know anybody who speaks uh, an indigenous Mexican language. And the guy said, I do. <laughs> I'm a Mixteco, and I speak one of the Mixtec dialects. So this really means that if the first person I asked speaks Mixteco, then probably at least half of them speak their own language. And it seems that, you know, many people are getting all kinds of grant money to go to Mexico and do these projects. How come nobody's working with, uh, you know, the thousands and thousands of people who are here? 
This is uh, one of our more lively collaborators. His name is Jose Juarez. He's a, a Totonac speaker from the uh, state of Puebla in Mexico. He's, uh, among other things, a shaman and a great storyteller. This is uh, the beginning of one story he told us. Without being too dramatic about it, do you think that there are languages, had their last speaker die in New York City? Well, yeah, sure. So there are these communities that are completely gone in their homeland. One of them is the Gottschers, a community of Germanic people who were living in Slovenia, and they were isolated from the rest of the Germanic populations. They were surrounded by Slavic speakers for several hundreds of years. And so they really have their own uh, variety that's not intelligible to other German speakers. And they had their own complicated history. They were removed from their forest in Slovenia into central Germany by Hitler. And then they ended up in Queens, New York. (laughs) These are the last speakers of this Germanic language. And that happens a lot, especially communities that left before World War II came to New York. It's true for many Italian dialects that are spoken in New York as well. Do people come to you and how do you meet speakers of minority languages? And what do you do when you meet them? One of the areas that we really concentrate on is the Mexican, uh, Guatemalan region. And so the communities here are so big that there's large events, you know, Cinco de Mayo and and things like that. And so we actually go there with recorders and and leaflets and and just talk to people and uh, get contact information to see if anybody's interested in working with us. Uh, We have a friend of ours who we work with who's a speaker of the Totonac language in Mexico, and he has his own radio program that kind of covers indigenous Mexico. And he always advertises for us, and he says, you know, if you speak an indigenous language, call this number. That went on for a couple months without anything. Uh, And then a couple weeks ago, we actually got a call from a listener who spoke Bribri, and I thought, this is really amazing, because this is an area that doesn't have much immigration to New York. He comes from Costa Rica, and this is a language with only 10,000 speakers. When people like that contact you, yeah. what, what are they contacting you for? Actually, they're thrilled that somebody cares about their language. This Bribri gentleman, I just spoke with him this morning, actually, and he says, thank God that there are people like you, which I found to be, you know, we haven't met yet, and when we do meet, he'll probably recant. But the fact is that the people are just so used to being discriminated against for their culture and their language and so used to being seen as, you know, hicks and backwards, you know, mountain people. And here they come to New York, center of the civilized universe, and, and they find, you know, a group of people who actually really care about their cultures and their languages and treat them as equals. I think even that is, is sometimes a, a unique feeling for indigenous people around the world. I'm fascinated by Daniel Kaufman's work recording these languages that have been marooned here in New York as a consequence of political upheavals in other parts of the world. But does this densely woven linguistic tapestry not pose a headache for politicians and administrators who have the responsibility of making New York, indeed the entire United States, function? Newt Gingrich, when he was campaigning for the Republican nomination for president, believed that it did. I am for English as a common unifying language. The fact is you will have a higher income, have greater job opportunities, and have a likelihood of your family having a better future if you're conversant in English. This is a view shared by Dr. Rosalie Porter, 
chairwoman of the board of Pro-English, a lobbying organization that supports making English the only official language of the United States. My family brought me to America when I was six years old, and not one of us knew a word of English. But I learned the language in the public schools, and it gave me the foundation for making the most of the educational opportunities in this country. I became a teacher of immigrant children at a time when there were laws that required children to be taught in their native language. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. We were teaching children who came from Spanish-speaking families in Spanish and Chinese and Chinese. Anyway, after some years, that experiment in bilingual education turned out not to be a success because our students were not learning English. And that was the language they needed for school and community success, etc. So I went into research and administration and, and eventually I became well known in the country for favoring what we call English immersion programs to help immigrant children get into our schools more easily and quickly and have a chance at success. Does the United States have a federally recognized official language policy? No, it does not. We have an official language law in 31 of the 50 states, but it is by state choice and usually by citizen vote. We do not have an official language in our country. Are there any of those 31 that have chosen a language other than English as their official language? No. Two states, Hawaii and New Mexico, have official English and another language, but all of their public government work is done in the English language. Why is it necessary for a state to legislate an official language and to, to sort of support in that way English, a language in a way that needs no protecting? Well, as a matter of fact, it does need protecting. In recent decades, many of our laws and practices have become enamored of the idea of multiculturalism. We have voting in different languages. We have driver's license tests in different languages. And more and more, there's the impulse to keep groups speaking their own language, which is fine privately. But when it's promoted by government agencies, it has a disuniting effect. One of the great beauties of America is that we receive immigrants from so many countries. Often, a classroom of immigrant children will contain 10 or 15 different languages. And so the uniting bond of a common official language of government is a useful and efficient thing. The argument that America should converse, at least officially, in only one language has been around for almost 100 years. Dennis Barron is Professor of English and Linguistics at the University of Illinois. Starting around 1918, there was a campaign of Americanization in the U.S., and one of the points that they kept stressing was, speak the language of your flag. If 
you want to be American, you have to speak American or speak English. The idea was that if you maintained an immigrant language, you could not fully become American, you could not fully understand the democratic ideals on which the country was based. You can't understand the Declaration of Independence in any language other than English or the Constitution or the Gettysburg Address thing. This being said, by the way, by people who are worshipping in their religions using English translations of sacred texts that were originally in other languages. Would you say that the Founding Fathers actually had an explicit language policy? They did not have an explicit language policy. They accommodated the multilingualism that they were dealing with at the time. They translated the Declaration of Independence into French, for example, and sent it north to Quebec to try to encourage the Quebecois to declare their independence from England. So when did the idea of multilingualism, retaining the language of heritage and origin, become so politically inflammatory? And and why is it really that some political parties spend time advocating a kind of pro-English, English-only, official English policy when it seems to be a language that needs no defending? Exactly. There's a kind of scare tactic that English is endangered at home. And it's certainly not. Census figures show 92% of U.S. residents speak English and the other 8% are trying to learn it. For Zenden and Wangdi in Jackson Heights, better employment was a major incentive to learn English and learn it well. But does one language have to be jettisoned to make space for another? The stops of the number 7 train told me a different story, one in which many languages survive precisely because they serve as a medium for conducting business and transmitting culture. Languages ebb and flow. Some triumph for a while and then fade away. At the end of the 19th century, the lower east side of Manhattan was a Yiddish-speaking world of Central and Eastern European Jews who moved in an ecosystem of Yiddish theatre, newspapers, restaurants and bookshops. But in the 20th century, Yiddish took a battering as the Jewish community left the lower east side. Newspapers and shops closed, and books were discarded. And then, just as it was most threatened, Yiddish bounced back. Aaron Lansky is the founder and president of the Yiddish Book Center, which he established to preserve and disseminate Yiddish culture. The number of Yiddish-speaking Jews in the world right now is actually on the rise because those parts of the Jewish community that are still largely sequestered from the mainstream, meaning the Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox worlds, continue to use Yiddish as their everyday language. And in fact, they continue to bring outside words into Yiddish. I'll give give you an example. I was in um, Borough Park, a Hasidic neighborhood of Brooklyn last year. We brought a group of our Yiddish students down there so they could see a place where Yiddish was actually being spoken. So we walked by a barber shop, and there's a traditional barber pole, and in big English letters it says barber, and underneath there are two words. First word is payas. Payas are the side curls worn by Hasidic men. And the second word with the four Hebrew letters, fe, ayin, resh, mem, which in Yiddish one would read as ferm. I was with a professor from Ottawa and she says, Adon, what does that mean, payas, ferm? And I look a little more closely and F and P are actually sort of interchangeable letters in Yiddish. And I said, I don't think it says payas, ferm. I think it says payas, perm. This is where one would go to have their side curls permed in order to give them that wonderful natural bounce that Hasidic men so value. So you see, uh, technology makes inroads all over and, and languages continue to change everywhere. Beyond that, though, outside of the Hasidic world, 
you know, there are many people nowadays who, who take Yiddish very, very seriously, who learn Yiddish in university, but are far more adept at actually speaking the language than people of my generation would have been, and uh, raise their kids in Yiddish as well. I don't want to overstate that as a, as a revival movement, but I think the resurgence of interest in Yiddish is certainly not a nostalgic enterprise. If anything, I think it's really a serious attempt to understand a broader view of Jewish identity, and it's only now I think the young people are are reconnecting with that. As I've discovered in these three programs, language death, as well as language life, is intimately connected with the upheavals of human society and the transformations of our ever more interconnected world. New York is a city that never sleeps and a city that never stops talking. A churning metropolis in which businesses, buildings and people constantly rise and fall. And for that reason alone, it's the perfect vantage point to listen to how the world's languages rise and fall on the tides of human affairs. Okay, that's it from Mark Turin. The producer was David Stenhouse. And I'll post links to a couple of related items at theworld.org slash language. And repeat listeners of the pod, they may recall the Endangered Language Alliance. We've featured them before. I'll link to that episode. If you want to get a hold of me, suggest something that you think I should talk about in the pod or post something for other listeners to see or maybe correct something that you've heard, go to the Facebook page, The World in Words, or you can tweet me. My Twitter handle is... Patrick Cox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. I'll be back in a few days.